Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Amy Charity, who is a former professional cyclist and has represented the U.S. at the World Championships within Team Time Trial. She is also a cycling coach, and along the way, she wrote a book entitled The Wrong Side of Comfortable. Amy co-founded the SBT Gravel event in 2019, which is based in Steamboat, Colorado. You might think Amy grew up having raced bikes and naturally became a pro cyclist, when in fact, she has a background as a swimmer and after college found a comfy career path within the financial world based in London. But somehow that wasn't enough for her, and she took a big risk and left her day job to pursue being a bike racer. This is her story and her path to becoming a pioneer in the world of gravel racing. I hope you enjoy this episode and gain some inspiration from this incredible cycling innovator. Amy Charity, thank you so much for joining me today on the CoachCast. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, um, I would just rode with you for a few days uh, a little while ago, and we'll get into that um, steamboat event here in a bit. Yeah. But while I was riding with you, I was like, wow, you really got to get you on the show. There's so many cool things going on. You've been a, a big p- pioneer in the sport of gravel, creating lots of opportunities for other folks as well as yourself. And would love to just dig into like everything you're doing and uh, it's just really good times. So um, great. thanks for, thanks for joining. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really happy to be here and it was great riding with you last week as well. So yeah, lots to talk about. All right. Awesome. Well, usually, you know, when you talk to ex pro cyclists, you tend to go from, Hey, where did you go from pro cycling into business? And you know, it's, it's kind of, it's flipped here. You know, you, you went from business into pro cycling and back to business. So, you know, I want to start there. You know, a lot of this kind of probably came from some of those business experiences that you've had. So, you know, start in college and kind of take us from there. And what was your career path look like? Yeah. Yeah. It was not a traditional trajectory by any means. Um, but yeah, straight out of college, I went to, to Vanderbilt and from there got, went right into corporate. And I think that was just sort of the, the path that seemed like the, the one that you follow, you get the best, you go to the best school you can, you get the, the quote unquote best job you can from school. I was really lucky to graduate in 99. The economy was doing great at that time. And so there were a lot of us um, from, from Vanderbilt that were recruited to, to Capital One. And so I spent the next nine years in financial services and in a a bunch of different roles there, lived all over the place, Richmond, DC, and ultimately in England. And that's where I really started riding a bike, but recreationally, no racing at that point. Um, And in 2008, I, I was thinking, okay, I've probably had enough of corporate life. And I wanted to come back to Colorado, which is 
where I grew up and um, wanted to live in a mountain town. And so we drove around to a bunch of mountain towns and landed in Steamboat for, for a bunch of reasons. And I really continued that that sort of path in the sort of more financial world, ultimately worked at a, a hedge fund here in Steamboat. So okay. all of that, that took me into my 30s. And again, no bike racing on the trajectory in, yeah. into my early 30s. It was all career focused at that point. And you still had, now you have like, you go to world championships as, you know, representing the United States. And yeah. okay, how do we go from hedge fund in your thirties, mountain town? You know, you haven't even mentioned bike racing yet. Um, no. You know, how, do we, how do we get into the bike racing thing? And I believe you had a swim, more swimming background. In yeah. College, swim, right? Yeah. Swimming through college and water or swimming through high school. And I played club water polo in college. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so while working, I, I did, I, I was talked into doing a bike race and it was a hill climb, lookout hill climb. It was literally the first oh, yeah. time I pinned I've on a that. number and all the categories were mixed in the women. And I, I ended up winning and just got this, like, that was the most fun I've ever had. And it was really exciting yeah. and it was really close. And I just remember thinking, this is, this is a lot of fun. Maybe I should race more. I ultimately hired a coach and um, raced that entire summer just across the state and was able to move up through the ranks in cycling. And um, it, I think at the end of the summer, I was a cat too, and then start, sent my resume out just for fun. And I remember hearing back from a team. It was funny. It, it, it was Vanderkitten. I don't know if you remember yeah. that team. Yeah, yeah. Out of Berkeley, California, and they uh, they offered me a contract. So at this point, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is like my dream come true." This was a zero cash, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. some travel stipend, and I think maybe I could keep a bike type of contract. But to me, it was the most exciting thing in my life. Wow! And yeah. so it's funny in hindsight, now I'm a little bit older. And I, I remember having this conversation with my parents, with my husband, and just like, is this a good move to leave, to leave a career that's going really well? And there's probably some good upward potential in this career or to jump over to, to be a bike racer. And in my mind, it was just a no brainer. Uh, I needed to be a bike racer and I needed to give that a shot. And so I ended up leaving the hedge fund and going full time into bike racing. I was 34 at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and then <laughs> progressed into turning professional, going to world championships. What kind of rider were you? Yeah. So I was, I was definitely a domestique kind of a ruler type rider. Um, not, I mean, GC only on the teams that weren't as strong. I, um, after Vanderkitten moved on to Optum and that was a UCI team and also had the chance to race for the U S national team, both in 2014 and 2015. Um, and again, domestique on the national team, but really had the exposure to, what European racing is like. It, it very, very different than US racing. Yeah. The size of the Absolutely. Peloton, the speed of it, the echelon style, the uh, you know, racing in Belgium, there's there's nothing like it. So 
um, had the opportunity to do two big blocks um, for two different years on the, the national team. So that that was just one of those experiences where you look back and think, I've, I've made it <laughs> in life <laughs> when you, you measure it on, uh, on cycling. So yeah, that was, that was incredible. And then where I really evolved was a uh, team time trial in Optum. Okay. That was their really a high priority for the team. The year that I raced for them was to make it to worlds and the time trial to become national champions. And I, I really found what my, my skill set was. It was, sort of this ability to suffer like I never had when you're trying to stay on that wheel or make it back on after you've been in the front. There's just there's yeah. something that is so incredibly it's motivating. And, um, you know, I think when you think power numbers, I never hit the numbers anywhere alone that I would hit on a team time trial. So that was ultimately the the event I liked the most that I think it brings together a, a racing team in, in no other way. Um, I've never felt teamwork like that than kind of that experience in team time trials. So looking back Absolutely. on the cycling career, that's what I, I really enjoyed the most. And I think where I excelled the most was in that discipline. You know, I get very nostalgic when I think about team time trials, because I grew up in the era of the Coors classic yes. in the eighties. And building up for the 1984 Olympics. It was an Olympic event. It was a 100 kilometers doing, imagine doing 60 mile team time trial. And for in prep for the Olympics, you know, the Coors Classic actually held a team time trial on the diagonal between Boulder and Longmont. Yeah. Which is like a pretty much a four lane highway and they shut it down and they had like all the teams racing team time trials. And it was so wicked cool to see that hundred kilometers. Um, and have you ever done a team time trial on cobblestones? (laughs) I have not, but that's interesting experience. Where did you do that? Uh, the three days to Pana in Belgium was like this three day semi-classic stage race. And we had a team time trial where we had cobbled climbs. Oh my gosh. uh, Yeah. That's going way back. That's going way back. That's a whole new element. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's it's a beautiful sport to watch too. It's just like when you're racing it well, it just looks like one long human. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. Well, and and actually they just did that in, in, do you know the sub seven and sub eight project in triathlon Ironman? I don't. They just had that a couple weeks ago where the men were trying to go under seven hours and the women were trying to go under eight and all four athletes did go under the sub, you know, two men, two women went under their times, but they did a team time trial on the cycling. So there were like no rules, if you will, Ironman. So that was, and it was on a a car track. Anyways, that sounds, we're getting a little little off, but that was really, (laughs) really cool. Really, really cool. I can delve deeply into team time trial for a long time. (laughs) So tell me about, you mentioned coach, you, you got a coach. Tell me about your earliest or your experiences, you know, working with a, with a cycling coach. Yeah. It was, did that help you along your way? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was, um, it was something I never really considered. So after leaving, you know, team sports in high school and college, I never thought, oh, I need to have a coach for cycling. And, um, and it was sort of a, my boss actually at the hedge fund hired him and he's like, you should, you should hire a coach too. And I was like, okay. And I did. And 
it, it fundamentally changed how I rode a bike. In the past, it was like, go out, ride however I feel like it as long as I want. And, um, you know, so I like going long. I don't necessarily like going really hard. And so I remember he would give me a workout like six, one minutes on, two minutes off. And I got to the point where I I would lose sleep the night before I had that workout. Like Anxiety. I was like, please yeah. just ride four or five hours. <laughs> He's uh, like, no, you can yeah. ride one hour. And these six right. minutes are all that matter in that entire hour. So get those done yeah. well. And I just yeah. remember like it was sort of this internal thing I had to go through to think about, I only have to work for six minutes. Like, why am I dreading this? Why is this so hard? And it was yeah. really teaching me like what going easy means, what going really hard means and how you tap into that, that upper level, which I wasn't even familiar with. You know, I'd try to stay on wheels, but it was very different to, to incorporate structure. Um, so I think that was a big piece of it. Of course, power meter followed from that. And it was like, oh, this is what I can do. Oh, this is what an FTP is. So really- And a training peaks maybe along the way? Oh, training peaks was definitely, I mean, that's how the schedule was delivered to me. So that was a big oh. deal to understand like, yeah, and to know what kind of athlete I am. Like I, I, I'm type A, like I, I don't want to miss one workout ever, you know, like- right, right. <laughs> I've, I've got to do what he's telling me to do. I used to always think that there'd be days I wasn't motivated. And I was like, what am I going to say? Like, I didn't feel like it. Or, and so I just go out and ride. And then sometimes I think like, I don't know if I can do this last interval. And I think like, what am I going to write in training peaks? My legs hurt. You know, like my legs are supposed <laughs> to hurt. Like I'm yeah, training right. hard. So I, right. it really did hiring a coach and then being accountable and putting all of seeing the data and then putting all the comments into training peaks was really a fundamental shift in kind of turning into a racing cyclist and then kind of an elite racing cyclist. Um, and of course the, the coach was a, a great coach and really helped me along the way understand like what my max efforts were. And it was, it was a blast to go back and look at the data and see kind of what, you know, what happened, what I was able to accomplish and see progression over time. You can set goals for, I know what my FTP is. I know what, I know where I am at a minute. I know where I am. I know when I have to go hard. I know when I have to sprint. If I want to win, I'm not a 20 second. Yeah. Like, I don't, I'm not yeah. off the charts at the shorter distances. So I better attack early. You know, you've learned that kind of <laughs> stuff when you look at your data. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was fascinating and really helpful. And now I know you're coaching, right? I am coaching. Yes. Handful of athletes, all gravel racers. And wow. uh, it's really fun to see people new into gravel cycling and understand kind of what their challenges are, the different personalities that you get with, uh, with different athletes. And then trying to think through as a coach, like how, how do I understand, how do I look at the data take that with the comments they make and make sure that they're not burned out, but they are reaching their max. And I think it's, it's fascinating to, to kind of go through that. So yeah, we, it's, it's, and it's, it's funny when I first started coaching, I had 
it's been so long. I had spreadsheets that I would send to people and it was like such a pain. I remember updating spreadsheets and then they me would too. send me emails back. And it was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, it was so much work. And uh, yeah, Trading Peaks has just fundamentally shifted that to make it really- Tell easy. me about it. You know, I was using the fax machine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't go that far back. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We emailed spreadsheets, but it was pretty archaic. So yeah, so I, I saw some opportunity there. <clears throat> I can imagine. I have a great appreciation for having that available. Okay, so you are working with primarily kind of beginner gravel racers coming into the sport. I believe there's a lot of there's certainly more and more opportunity every year around that for coaches to kind of tap into that market. I believe kind of the mindset of, of gravel racers beginning is it's, it's just like, Oh, I'll, I'll jump in my, the local, you know, I, I think about running and like, Oh, I'll just, I can do a 10 K I can just like jump in and do it. And that's probably how most people do it. They just yeah. jump in and do it. And that's like, I want to talk more about that, but that's like the beauty of gravel as well. Like, yeah, come do it. You, you know, this is your first time ever. You're welcome. Um, but then they see the possibilities. They want to be faster. Maybe they don't, their goal may not be to podium, but they would like to get through it more comfortably or without stopping or without cramping. So I believe like even triathlon coaches might be having these opportunities come to them, you know, and they're, they're seeing these opportunities, but it's a, it's a mind shift to go from, only working with athletes that have, you know, years of experience in them and helping them reach the podium or get to the next level versus an athlete's never towed the start line before or right. barely knows what's going on. So what are the, some of the biggest mistakes you see with these newer, um, like gravel racers that coaches should even, you know, it's a mind shift. It's like, yeah, what are the is. biggest things you're seeing that it's just like, ah, wow, I never thought about that. I, they really need to learn X, Y, Z. Yeah, no, it's it's been really fun um, seeing the sport of sort of gravel emerge and then also having this variety of athletes. And I do have one of my athletes is really talented and she's an up and comer. And I think she'll she will be on the podium and in a race one, hopefully this summer. But she's definitely sort of absorbing everything. And she has a running background and really okay. strong mountain biker. I have the entire gamut though. I have um, other athletes as you described that are entering some of their first races when they, they they'll do unbound or something that's quite intimidating, but it's one of their first events um, and, and kind of everything in between. But I think in terms of the, the mistakes I'm seeing, one classic mistake is just flat out overtraining and overtraining in a, just one zone. So I'm going to hop on my trainer or my bike and I'm going to ride eight hours and that should be good. And I'll do that a handful of times. And then I'm ready for a, an endurance event. And I think what, what I'm trying to demonstrate to them through structure is you've got to tap into those higher levels in those higher zones and you also need recovery. So I think that's one of the key pieces is you take people, take people who appreciate endurance athletics and they're motivated and they just do too much as opposed to right. cutting that back and really trying to see a bit more structure. So that's a piece of it. And then, um, you know, I have, a, I have another athlete that I coach that 
just really resist structure. And it's like, I just want to ride my bike with my friends. And so we've had to get pretty creative with building in how he can get in some of those intervals. And so we've actually found there's one road that he likes to do. And I'm like, are there stop signs? Are What are your landmarks? And you're going to sprint for your landmarks. And like, so we, yeah. we have to be a little bit creative with him to make sure to build in structure in a way that he doesn't notice that he's doing structure. So, right. um, yeah, I think it's those things. It's, Sometimes it's overtraining. Sometimes it's just, I want to be in the endurance zone always. And I, I just have no interest in, in that higher level where you, you know, you start to suffer a little bit. So those are kind of the, the big mistakes that I see from the beginners. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go from the 100 mile distance at Steamboat Gravel and I'm going to do Unbound, which if people don't know is 200 miles, you know, the the, the big event. And right. so, aha, I just need to double my training hours. It's like, it doesn't work that way. It's, it isn't just a linear, you know, type of thing, one-to-one. And so getting smart with how you train and how to, you know, that, that, that variability in the training paces or intensity yeah. levels really has a lot, you know, learning what an easy ride feels like versus what a hard ride feels like that you need to, you know, both of those in, in the programming. It's, it's fascinating to me. I've ridden with so many people on their easy rides and I'm like, little ring, little ring, we're talking. This should not hurt. This should feel like sitting on the couch yeah. and they, they're looking back and they're half wheeling. I'm like, no, we're riding next to each other. You're in your little ring. Right. And that's like, yeah. it's hard for people to, to kind of grasp that, that overall concept. And so, you know, that's a, that's a big piece of it. I think another is it's interesting. I see this across the board with athletes, no matter how fit they are, how experienced is you start gaining fitness and you get close to your event and you're watching sort of other people's Stravas or you're watching other group rides and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm six days out from SBT gravel. I've got to do a hundred miles cause I'm feeling good. And a hundred miles feels like nothing and getting people to taper. Um, and that I've really, I have to really get them to like say in so many different ways, but if you, even if you don't touch the bike for five days, you're better off than if you go out on a long ride close to the event. And I think just having people realize that and look at some of their numbers and understand that it's, you're not gaining fitness. I know you feel good now, but you've got to back off. And I think that's another really important piece that I see that from the most experienced. I see that on Strava for people who are trying to win these events. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you can't go that hard this close to an event. Like you've got to recover. And so that's the other side of things that you, you see, and you try to get that message across and make sure your athletes trust you and the process and themselves enough that they don't feel like they need to train hard right before. Yeah. You almost have to punish the uh, athlete, you know, it's like, (laughs) Hey, you need to keep this below 200 Watts on every single second, you know? And yeah. If they don't, it's like, okay, we're going to do that again until you get it right. <laughs> that's that's In fact, I live at the top of a pretty steep hill. And I remember telling my coach, like, I can't leave my house and make it home on a recovery ride. I'll fall over if I keep my Watts under 120. And he was like, then you drive to the bottom of the hill. <laughs> I don't want yeah. you getting your Watts above 120. So that yeah. was like, 
you, tough love. <laughs> so it works. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, along the way you wrote a book. I did. Right? The yeah. wrong the wrong side of comfortable. <laughs> yes. And this somewhat, I guess, kind of I'll let you explain it, but tell us the, you know, what that's all about. Yeah. So it's it's funny. The the title comes from my husband and he's he's British and so he sort of has away with words, but there was a time that I was getting into racing and trying to sit on his wheel and he kept going faster and faster. And I, at one point I was like, Hey, knock it back a little bit. And in his British accent, he just said, darling, you're on the wrong side of comfortable. And I was like, ah, I was really upset at the time, but it like, it, it stuck with me. And I think it'll, I think about it a lot in bike racing. Like you, if you can just sort of get your head around that, it is uncomfortable. So you're just, and it's sort of that, English way of wording things. You're on the wrong side of it, but you can just picture that comfortable's just over here and you're, you're just on right. the wrong side of it, but you're okay. And, uh, so that is sort of my takeaway of, of bike racing. Um, but I wrote the book because it was, it was right after I'd finished, we had just raced the world championships in the team time trial. I was ready to move on from bike racing. And I just remember thinking, what happened. Like I was, I was like on this career trajectory and all of a sudden, like so many things happened in my life. I don't want to forget them. I just, I think there's so many life lessons that come out of bike racing from, from teamwork to working hard to um, being a good person there. It goes on and on. And the, the lessons you learn in bike racing are so like acute and they are just delivered to you in, in such a deliberate way that I wanted to capture that. And I was hoping to write something that people could read, whether they're like going into a new job or whatever sort of phase they're in, in their lives that they could read this book and think, here are the lessons here and you will make it through this hard stuff and get to the other side. So that was a lot of it. And then the other side is, it's just, you know, this from pro racing, but the things that happen to you are almost unbelievable. Like I, I think of things that happened racing in El Salvador and it was like, their days they didn't have food for us. <laughs> we have an 80 mile race ahead and we're scrambling for anything we can find. Like literally just like looking through pockets and like airplane peanuts that were in our backpacks to, to eat before this big race. So bananas in the jungle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like just uh, these things happen to you that you just can't believe that was part of your your career and what you were doing right. for a living and I wanted to capture it it's it's fascinating and you right. learn a lot when you go through that type of thing when I think about the wrong side of comfortable you know I think about risk like taking risk on and you you've you've certainly done that several times you go from the risk of leaving a hedge fund comfy job you know into being a bike racer. And then you, now you did this transition of going from bike racer, taking the risk and like not doing a traditional job, but starting a bike race, starting an event, yeah. you know, yeah. <clears throat> we'll get to that, but talk to me about the psychology and how do you do, how do you take that on going into the unknown and taking that risk? you've done that several times in your career, you know, what are lessons learned from that? And how, how do others maybe, um, 
what are takeaways for others? Yeah. I think my like general philosophy in life is like not having regrets. And I always try to fast forward to like, when I'm 70, when I'm 80, like, am I going to look back and think, man, that was so cool. You made a lot of money to hedge fund. <laughs> like, no, who cares? Oh, that was so cool. You raced in the world championships. Like, on a yeah, yeah that's what I want to talk about when I meet people. Like, <laughs> who cares about what you did in your career path in financial services? But you talk about, like, some of the cool things you were able to do on a bike. And that, that to me is like, yeah, that's what how that's what I want to look back and think about. And I think very similarly with putting on an event, this is sort of this is a culmination of what a business background and a cycling background can do. And then mm-hmm. now I'm in a position to actually drive change, like get people on bikes and get diversity on bikes and more women on bikes. So that to me is just like an absolute no brainer. It's like, I can actually make a bit of a difference before it felt very sort of self-focused. How do I go about maximizing what I can do? And now it's like, this is a cool opportunity to, I mean, the selfish side is I feel really good about it, but it's also, you get to do some cool things and you, you see you're making little differences within our cycling world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's so much of what, where you've made, you know, a difference and, and steamboat gravel has certainly made a difference. Um, give us some stats for folks that are in triathlon running that tell us about steamboat gravel, you know, and how many years and how big is it and why I start it. So it was, um, 2018 and I think gravel was just kind of becoming a thing. So, um, unbound, which was dirty Kansas at the time was, was, had been around for a while and there were a handful of other events, you know, Crusher and the Tusher was a popular event, sort of does a roadie or a mountain biker win it. So there was this, um, uprising of let's ride on surfaces outside of paved roads. And so I had just finished unbound and was like, gosh, we have these incredible gravel roads and steamboat. Why don't we do something here? And at the time, the whole Rocky Mountain region was fairly untapped for a mass start gravel event. I had two business partners at the time. We put our heads together and thought, okay, let's put it on an event. Should we make this regional? Should we go after Colorado or how about country like, you know, the United States? And then we thought, I think we should go big. We can make this an international event with our sort of collective backgrounds. We can, we can really knock this out of the park. So we launched the race in 2018 and that was for 2019 and sold out right away um, with 1500 people. So six days. Yeah. And we we were like, that's great. You know, we're excited about that. And so we were going to grow the event, opened up registration for 2020 2020, and um, opened it up for 2000 people and sold out in 20 minutes. So it was like, okay, we're really on to something. Um, and then of course, 2020 was canceled and we put on the race for 21 and same thing. I was in it. Lottery. Yes. Congratulations on making it in. Um, and we had 2000 people for, uh, for 2021. And I didn't pull any strings to get in. It was no, lottery, you did not. I appreciate you know? it. Just straight up <laughs> on your computer registered. Um, so it's, 
it's interesting with gravel now it's become really popular and we open registration in December for an August event. And this year we, uh, we did a lottery. And the reason for that is we think it's more fair. Um, a lottery is randomized. And what we heard back when we had people trying to get in for 2021 was we opened it up at eight. It was sold out at eight ten. It's shut. And so then we started getting emails for the next several weeks, like, hey, I'm a teacher. I, I can't be on my computer at eight or I'm a doctor. I was give, I was in surgery. Like there's so many reasons they and the argument was basically you're catering to people who have fast Internet and really flexible schedules and sit at their computers. And yeah. this isn't fair. And so we thought, let's try a lottery. And then it's just a random algorithm that selects people. So we went that route. Um, it's it's always hard. We still had to turn down um, over a thousand people, and we'll have three thousand on the start line this year. Um, the the other thing we we really try to create a race that's inclusive for people based on distances. So thirty seven is our shortest distance. That's our green yeah. course. Don't you have e bikes or something allowed? E bikes are allowed on the yeah. e bikes on that awesome. green course. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's fun. It's got, it's, um, kind of a mixed bag of different ages who do the e-bike race. We have a couple who the, um, husband wanted to ride his regular bike and his wife wanted to ride an e-bike. So it opens up doors and all of this is how do you make a race that's more, that's inclusive. And so we have yeah. that green course and then all the way to the black course, which is 142 miles. And then two distances in between. So, yeah, yeah it's a uh, three thousand is really the number where I think we'll stay. It feels like um, a, a number that you can still create a great experience for people, and not have them feel like there are too many people here. It, I'm just a number. We want everyone to leave here and say that was that was great. I'm coming back next year. So that's so um, tell us about some of the diversity, you know, efforts you're, that you're making. Um, I mean, like BIPOC, you know, mm -hmm. how, how are, how, you, how can we get more diversity within the sport, people of color, uh, and what, what kind of programs are, are you working on? Yeah. The, um, so BIPOC has been really important to us and this was a new initiative for 2021. And we reached out to Marcus Robinson was one of our racers, um, that had signed up for, to race SBT gravel. And, um, we thought, how do we, how do we reach out to the BIPOC community and what can we do as event organizers? So where we started was, why don't we offer 25 scholarships and no matter what their, the financial background is, we make it really easy. And then we source the different things that people might need for, to come and do the race. And that's everything from shoes and helmets to bikes. So how do we work with partners, make connections, make sure that people are able to come to the event? Um, but what was really different about this program, it, it wasn't just offering scholarships. We became very close with the athletes. There was a monthly Zoom call. By the time they were here, I knew all of them. They knew, knew who I was. They knew what to expect with SBT Gravel. There were some Zoom calls that were incredibly tough. It was like, it's March. It's snowing here. I'm not training. I'm worried about this race. I don't know any of you well. Like, How do we get to know each other? So there were some really 
strong moments of getting to know the personalities. And I think from my perspective, that's really what made the difference was these, the 25 athletes that came here became my friends and, um, and they knew the community and they knew our team. And when they got here, they felt welcome and they felt comfortable and they felt included. And it wasn't just, here's an entry to SBT. We'll see you later. It was, you're part of us. You're part of our family. Come here and feel welcome. So I think the way you scale that is one, that was 25 athletes and most of them are coming back. We've opened up the door to another 25 this year. And then part of the application process is what will you do in your communities to help grow the BIPOC community on site on bikes? And so one of the women who lives in Texas invited the SBT team down there this winter and said, I'm going to invite all of my friends. Can you do an SBT group ride and let's make it a fundraiser for Ride for Racial Justice? So- We flew down, a couple members of the board from Ride for Racial Justice flew down, and we had this incredible fundraiser. We had over 100 people attend. We did a panel the day before just talking, like just having a conversation. And it was amazing. It was like, now we're into Texas, and there are 100 people here who now are considering getting on a bike and who feel part of the cycling community. So you think of other pockets around the country doing that. And the next thing you know, you you've scaled something that started with 25 people. So that's a program we'll continue indefinitely. And I'd like to see more of the sort of on the road initiatives where we go into those communities and help bring a presence, help push the fundraising and meet people and really start to get more people on bikes. Yeah. I mean, that's also just the beauty of gravel itself is being very open and welcome. And obviously, you know, a lot of us have roots in road cycling where, you know, there's, you know, so many obstacles to get in. (laughs) For sure. You know, we always joke about the sock height, you know, thing, you know, and rules around sock height or all kinds of obscure traditions. And gravel just has a, a, a clean slate. You know, exactly. and it's great that the pioneers of gravel really um, took to that, you know, and kind of had it remain open and welcome. Hopefully that that DNA of the sport can continue even as it gets gains more momentum, more prize money, more pros. Yeah, but it's, I think of it as chicken and the egg, you know, like why concentrate on <clears throat> making this. UCI World Championships, blah, blah, right? Whereas, well, if we make an open welcoming and build a, a, a strong base, competition will take care of itself. Right. That's absolutely you true. It's, yeah. A couple things on that. One, to your point on road racing, it, I, for some reason, I remember when I first signed up for a road event and it said like cat one, two, three, four. I was like, what's a cat? But am I a cat? Am I what cat am I? Do I just pick one and just think of like what that you know for the, those of right. you who are getting into road racing? It's yeah. like you need you need to know where you stand. There's a long system to move up in categories. And for gravel racing, my mom can register for a gravel event, and she will start with me if she wants. It is yeah. mass start. Right. It's mass participation, and you pick and choose. And so. I think that is the beauty there. That is a bar- That's a real barrier when you need to think of like what category you are and your best friend might race five hours after you because they're in a different category versus 
in a gravel event, we all start together. And I think that is, that's one of the reasons it's so com- inclusive. Um, I think the other, to the point of um, the pro riders, they are a piece of our community, but something SBT set out to do was make the race fair for everyone. And um, it was because I think, you know, having been on the pro side of things, you see this at other events where the the pros that have really strong sponsor sponsor teams in a gravel race they and where there's you're allowed to have outside support they have a basically formula 1 system where people just rush them in rush them out clean their chain give them a mousset like they they're on their way and then if you're an amateur or you don't have that support system you have five minutes there to try to sort out your bike and your chain and your food and your nutrition and so SBT thought we want this to be equal to everyone. And so we don't do call-ups. We, um, everyone starts together. Aid stations are for everyone. You cannot have outside support. So all of that was in relation to how do we make this as fair as possible? And, and that's not the same for every gravel event. That's, um, a little bit unique to SBT, but it really was in the spirit of fairness of, we want everyone to have an equal shot and we don't want to give special treatment to the pro racer or any other racer. So that's our thinking in, in making an event inclusive is treating everyone, welcoming everyone, having them have the same experience. Yeah. Well, now you have more than one event and you... Well, the event I just attended was SBT travel. Um, what four day, just training, more of a training camp. But yet, again, everybody was welcome, and there were like absolute newbies there. Yeah. And you accommodated folks that didn't want to do the whole distance. You know, instead of doing seventy miles a day, they could do half of it or start later. And you really accommodated for that. And I really haven't seen that in, in like traditional, like road camps, you know? Um, so I appreciate that. And then you saw folks that have never done, you know, that many miles, you know, stacked in a row, right. um, and also different sizes of folks. And you even have, don't you have a, a program where you're trying to attract even just bigger size folks? Yes, you know, we sure do. Yeah, cycling? that's all bodies on bikes. And that's another one of okay. our... Um, advocacy programs and we have scholarships and very similar to Ride for Racial Justice. We have monthly meetings with everyone talking about what some of their concerns are, what their fears are coming to SBT and walking through how we can help and what we can do to make sure they have a great experience when we're here. And that really goes to how do you make sure that everyone feels welcome and how do you get more people on bikes? Um, specifically related to travel that we just did, the the intention was to create a, just a great riding experience for four days and more intimate, more personalized, more high touch than than we can do with three thousand people. Uh, that's that's the idea of it, and something that we'll continue to to do year after year and. And that really is our audience. Our audience is people who are a lot newer to cycling or interested in going a quarter of the distance. And then we have you and we have a handful of world tour pros. And so we want to make sure you feel challenged and you have fun out there and you have a great day on the bike. And the person who wants to do a third of that distance also 
feels good about it. And so it was a bit of a trial and we knew going into it that we would have very mixed abilities. And that's something that we want to accommodate. We think that that's, that's great. We, if we can show everyone a little slice of the route County roads and the Yamper river and all those cool highlights that we just want to make sure you have this great experience here. And we'll continue. Well, to- selfishly, I don't want people to show up because they're so quiet and amazing. All the roads, <laughs> I know, but I'm I sure know. the hundreds and hundreds of miles of dirt roads you guys have, you know, people can find solitude no matter what day they show up. So it is absolutely amazing terrain. And the reason I signed up was I would never see it like on my own. You know, to have someone else organize it, and we did point to point. We didn't just start and finish from the same spot. So it really opened up the possibilities for where we could ride. Um, and we even had a day with a net, de- like more descending than climbing, which was like, I've <laughs> never, I don't know, last time yeah. I did that. <laughs> when we drive you up rabbit ears. Yeah. So yeah. that's the idea of it is we never, we don't want to create a vacation that you and your buddies could just fly into steamboat or drive into steamboat and, and replicate. We want something that these are unique roads. These are roads that are not as easy to find. They're off the beaten path. They are remote. So there's nowhere to get water or food if you don't have somebody supporting you. And the ranchers are very nice. The ranchers are, they are incredibly nice. Yeah. They've in general, very supportive of the gravel riders that are now out and about on the roads that they live on. So that makes for a really cool experience for people. All right. So, and the other event you just announced, uh, yeah. VB Gravel Finland. Well, it's, it's fin- yeah, Finland Gravel. And again, we, okay. we don't use many vowels. So it's FNLD, VBL, yes. Finland Gravel. <laughs> okay. And so it's not VB, but explain not, that connection. It is, it is in partnership with Valtteri. So, um, yeah, the sort of the genesis of that is Valtteri Botis, who, for those of you who don't know, is a Formula One racer for Alfa Romeo. He is from Finland and he is a passionate gravel cyclist. He uh, he happens to date Tiffany Cromwell, who is a phenomenal legend, really world tour pro cyclist from Australia. And so they are both gravel racers and Tiffany has done SBT gravel for the past two years. And she had Valtteri do it last year and he had a great time. We talked a little bit. He's a really nice guy. And he later said in an article in a Velo news article that someday he may want to put on a gravel event in Europe. And so um, we reached out to him, the SBT team, and said, what would you think of partnering? And he said he would love to. And so he is now our business partner. And we have decided to launch an event in Finland. And the thing that's really been fascinating is Finland has so many of the traits that we found to be the right thing in SBT in Steamboat. And that is oh. these endless gravel roads. We have a couple of routes picked out that are long loop routes. Um, 
that his hometown of Lati is a sporting town. They have great accommodation, good restaurants. Everything is walkable. And it's very much this sporting town that supports Nordic skiing in the winter and then cycling in the summer. And so there are just some really interesting, fun features to, to go over and, and see. For example, in June, it doesn't really get dark in Finland. So yeah. we will, yeah, we'll be over there when we can be out and about at midnight and it's still light out. So there's just some really cool reasons that we think it's going to be a, a great race. And we will take the, really the SBT, what we're known for, that's the event that we're going to create over there. So where we really invest heavily in the riders, we try to create this incredible rider experience. that's challenging. It's fun. It's scenic and something that people just leave there thinking, I want to go back and I want to invite all of my friends to come here too. So well, that's I've, what I've been to working. Finland. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind going back. I've been there once and uh, yeah, great, great place to visit. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah, it'll, it'll be good. We're doing a little test um, event over there in August and then our, our race will be in June of 2023. We'll open up registration right. for that this fall. Very cool. Awesome. Hey, well, unfortunately I have to wrap things up. I'd love to keep chatting, uh, but you know, how can people do, follow you, you're on social feeds, yeah. you know, how can people yeah. get in contact with you? So SBT is a great way, sbtgrvl.com. Um, for our website, that's our Instagram and social handle. For me personally, it's Amy M Charity. That's on Instagram. So uh, look me up and um, SBT. And yeah, we'd love to have people out spectate, volunteer, um, or register to do SBT for 2023 and look out for Finland with that registration. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll be out there this August. Um, I won't start 700th on the back road <laughs> yeah, this year. Yeah. Make your way to the front there. <laughs> yeah. I was anaerobic for the first 20 minutes trying to get to the first dirt <laughs> as high up as I could. And I made that mistake as a newbie. <laughs> <laughs> ideal way so, to start a race right <laughs> i'll have to get up front uh after the black start uh i do i do the blue you know i i i really like competition i'm addicted to racing so i like racing more than surviving and you know i can do that on 10 12 hours of training a week so the Thanks for holding a shorter event and not just yeah. 140. Well, Dirk, what I will say is blue for the first time this year is more popular than black. Yeah. So I think more hey, and more blue people... is the new blue is the new black. Yeah. <laughs> more and more people are thinking, okay, a hundred miles is still long. <laughs> That's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll I'll see you out there if not before. But thanks so much for sharing all of your wisdom and good luck. And thanks for your, all you do within, within the sport. Great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 